stupid article saying chefs will be replaced with robots, I wasn't going to be working with those people every day again. That was tough because there was lots of people in that kitchen who were there from day one. There needs to be a level of respect for each other and respect for each other's religions and cultures. It's part of the city's history and we should be proud of it and we should have people coming to London and going, I really want to go to Pine Mash Shop. Hello there and welcome to Hungry. Hungry is the podcast for the next wave of challenger food and drink brands looking to pour gasoline all over their growth. Each week we'll interview successful founders, thought leaders, unpack their lessons and provide you with the toolkit to scale super fast. I am Dan Pope, I am your host and without further ado, let's get started. Uh, hello there people and listeners of the Hungry Podcast. Today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome uh, Callum Franklin onto the podcast. Uh, Callum is the pie man in many respects. Uh, he he was the head or the executive chef at the Rosewood Hotel in London where he created the pie room, um, which has now kind of put British pies and British food on the map, in my opinion, or back on the map, I should say. was one of the first chefs to really pioneer using Instagram as a, as a marketing tool and channel. Um, very recently, I think last year, last June, um, has now left the Rosewood, left the pie room, which is still actually going to move on to bigger, uh, more interesting, wonderful things. So look, Callum, super excited to have you on, mate. Um, yeah, super excited. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm excited to chat. You know, I love any conversation I can have about pies, I'm in my happy zone. So yeah, all good. <laughs> So we should touch upon, so last night I got a collection, well, I, I like sent to me was about 12, six pork pies with your collaboration with Dixon and um, and Morris and this Christmas pie. And oh my God, because I, I ended up stuffing my, I ended up having half the, the pork pie, <laughs> yeah, like with a bit of mustard. And then obviously I've, I've listened to a couple of podcasts you've done about having them hot. Mm. as like a hot, hot pork pie is like an absolute game changer. So I whacked it. I don't know if this is heinous thing to say to a chef, but I whacked it into it. Whacked it in a microwave, <laughs> heat it up. It, it was do, right? It's it was like a different thing. Like I always think curry curry is delicious, warm, but it's also banging the next day when it's cold. It's like a completely mm. different tapestry of eating. I've never thought about having a proper pork pie hot. Um, so yeah, thanks yeah. for the uh, the delivery. I think the first time I had one was in a pub. Uh, in the Cotswolds about I think it was like 12 years ago something like that and it was in a and the, they served a little hot pork pie in the bar of the pub and I remember just mm. thinking oh is it like a game changer right it's that like the fats just loosen a little bit and get unctuous and yeah I might go and have one after this they yeah it was it was that and it's still yeah it just it changed it to a different different level I was well yeah as I said I almost basically smashed the whole one last night um where I want to start though mate is I want to kind of start at this this crossroads this changing period because I think everyone in life has to go through change Mm. change is hard but it's interesting it's scary but it's exciting I want to talk you what you built at at, in at the Rosewood in the pie room was was really kind of it put what as wind in the sails of British kind of cookery I I think in terms of putting pies back on the map you said in an article I read, letting go of something you have cared for deeply is never going to be easy. But after almost nine years, it's time for a big change. Last week marked the end of my time at Holborn Dining Room uh, as I made the decision to move on to focus on new projects, to push myself further towards my goals and dreams. 
I'd love to to know what that feeling was in here, like when you walked into the doors um, of the Rose or the, or the Holborn dining room for like the last time. What did that feel like? Yeah, it was difficult. Um, it, it, I think mentally, I'd I'd, I'd prepared myself. It's going to sound wild because it's just a restaurant, right? But it's a restaurant that I was at almost, you know, probably six days a week for for coming up to a decade. So. And and I I'd, I'd, I'd built with the team as well, so that was tough. It was more, I think, genuinely the knowing that I wasn't going to be working with those people every day again. That was tough because there was lots of people in that kitchen who were there from day one and were still there right at the end, and they're still there now. To be fair, and and you know they were friends you know they were at my wedding we spent life moments together we cooked all over the world um so that felt difficult but uh it was just the right time for that to happen it was you know those people that were there um it was time for them to shine in that restaurant as well so um all of it was kind of some serendipity to it it was kind of yeah the right time and you said it was the right time. How, how did you know it was the right time? Because as you said, it's, it's, it's your it's your baby, it's your mm. souls in that game. It's hard. I, I just think it's interesting for making change and how to how to know it's the right time. Yeah, I mean, I think I had uh, over that period of time, kind of built. Uh, not, I hate it when people have like ten year plans and stuff like that. You know. Uh, it's the worst thing in the world when I see like dating shows on TV where guys are like, "Tell me what your five year plan is." I want to know. And like, shut oh my days, like, shut up, yeah, shut the fuck but, up. <laughs> but I do have a sort of uh, a structure in my mind of of what I want to do with pie making in the UK and, and and in the world as well, right? So part of that was, you know, it was a natural step that I'd have to I'd have to leave the restaurant because there my time was 100% dedicated in either in the pie room, making pies with the team or on the pass in the main kitchen. And it gave me very little space to open up those new plans. So for me to be able to do that, I had to step away. That was a natural step. And it was probably the first step of this big plan. So, um, yeah, and I would just like to introduce British pie. And I know there's a demand. I would like to introduce British pie making on a larger scale around the world, um, which is kind of what we're doing now. So the and then and then so then you, you leave, you walk out the hotel or the, or the restaurant for the first time. Like, what are the kind of the voices in your in your head? And like, what's the first thing you do? I'm just trying to set the scene, I suppose. Well. Um, I luckily straight off, you know, I, I didn't want to go from 100 miles an hour to zero, like, because I knew I, as a chef who's worked for 20 years, kind of non stop, I didn't want to crash. So, um, I, you know, I've worked with Dickinson and Morris, who, you know, the, the pies you ate last night, I've worked with them since 2021. Uh, and that, is a constant evolution of work. So we're always sort of developing together. So actually that was the first thing was being able to go deeper in with, with Dickinson and Morris on development. Um, right. 
but also, yeah, I mean, there there were sort of other plans in place that were were unfolding, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're sort of looking. I can't talk too much about it just now, but you know, possibly opening uh, the pies up around Europe a little bit more, um, which is very exciting, and sort of will appear at the beginning of next year if everything goes to plan. Hi there, guys. Super, super quick one. Um, I write a weekly newsletter called Hungry Friday Feast. It goes live at 8 a.m. every Friday. I'm pouring my soul into this bad boy. It's probably my favorite creative endeavor I've ever done. I basically pick apart all the biggest lessons, all the biggest learnings from all the wonderful guests and throw it into a feast or a newsletter. We've got over 1,200 subscribers. Come and join the party. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. It's right at the top. Subscribe. And if you are already a subscriber, please just forward it on to a friend. Do the amount of favour. It would mean the world to me. Anyway, back to the old episode, boys and girls. So the pie is, is almost the what is your kind of your why. I'd love to... I know you worked in a few like proper like kind of Michelin restaurants. I think one was like chapter two down in Kent, if I've read that right. Where, where did this fascination with pies and and british cooking come from like where did that how did that bubble in you do you know what I mean yeah i mean so if you look at that sort of that timeline of cooking was like you said you know was french fine dining uh i mean it goes way back to chapter one was the first place actually which was under andrew mcleish um it was michelin sort of you know heavy heavy French influenced fine dining and I kind of carried on that style of cooking right up until really around the age of 30 I would say and then there I I kind of just started to embrace British cooking more um and that was around the time I kind of started working at roast in Borough Market um and helping Marcus Verburn run the kitchen there whilst he did a cookbook. And there it was all about embracing British ingredients, right? And we had a pie on there. And so we and were very lucky. We had the keys to all of the sort of stalls and borough markets. At nighttime, you'd go and just grab ingredients and leave an IOU and then write a menu for the next day. So there, my passion for British cooking started, was stoked again. And then when we opened Holborn Dining Room, Back in 2014, uh, February 2014, um, we started with a pie on the menu. I was like, I want to have a pie on the menu. I just want to see how it goes. And straight away, the guests just, I realized we were very lucky in the, the, the demographics of the guests. So, you know, we're surrounded by loads of old law firms around there. It very much sat with that crowd, having a, a British pie. And so it did more and more. And then um, what really sort of kicked it off was that building was 100 and, 100 now, 115, 116 years old, I'm going to say. And it's been lots of different things over the years. And they had this basement, which we called Aladdin's Cave. And down there, we would find all of these um, pieces of equipment, whether it's like silver service trolleys, these incredible 100-year-old trolleys, and we'd send them off to get refurbed and then use them in the restaurant. And one day I found a pie tin. And uh, I knew it was a pie tin, but I didn't know the technique for using it. It's a, it's a, a pie tin that's made. It's called a corset, a corset mold, right? So it's just a Victorian pie tin. It looks like a, the, the corset that you put around a waist. And uh, two, 
two sides to it and a bass and a set of keys that holds it together. And I, I knew what it was, but I didn't know the technique. So I was like, ah, oh, we should work out to use this. And I took it up to the kitchen to my, and my number two at the time was a chef, David Burke, who had opened lots and lots of, um, very well-known restaurants over the, the last sort of 30 years in London, um, super experienced guy. And he looked at me and he was like, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I was like, all right, okay. So I, I, you know, had a team of 35 chefs in that kitchen and I sort of opened it up to the team, just, you know, layer by layer through the sous chefs and it turned out no one knew. So my first thought was, wow, like this is a, a, a British pie making technique that, is skipping generations here, right? We none of us here know how to do this, and uh, if we don't learn it, maybe I don't know on a bigger scale, not just us, but if you know this is happening all over the country, this skill gets lost. So I went on a sort of little mission then to delve more and more into that style of traditional pie making and working these things out, and then teaching that to the team. So we started to do that. Then what happened with that was uh, it became this dominant presence in the kitchen, right? At the time, we just had the restaurant and the main kitchen. And um, all of the senior chefs were dedicating way too much time to very delicate pie making. And it, it, I saw it was affecting potentially the rest of the menu. So I said, look, we either cut it here where we're at, we keep it at this level, or we need to build another kitchen, right, and separate this work off completely um, and and dedicate a, a beautiful space to doing that and a separate team. Um, and that will give us a chance to progress that. And I was very lucky that kind of the owners of the building um, shared that vision of mine and they basically gave me a carte blanche to design that kitchen and I went sort of all in with it we went you know I, I wanted it to I wanted the design to reflect the detail of the work that would go in in that kitchen because you know you're very much affected by your environment when you work so um I spent a long time sort of drawing that kitchen by hand at first and and actually if you ever get a copy of the Pyram cookbook you can see my original sketches um of the of how I wanted that room to come out um yeah we built this room and uh and actually that was the first place I met um the team from Dickinson and Morris way back right when we first opened their room and um, they popped in one day for lunch and they said hey uh you know we're the development chefs at Dickinson and Morris and I said ah I would love to sort of mm. come up and see how you guys work because for me, I worked on a tiny scale, right? I mean, for chefs, maybe it's a big scale. We were doing sort of 200 covers, but in the in this, the world of pie making, very much a small scale. So we were producing maybe, I don't know, 200, 250 pies at a time. Um, and, and I wanted to understand their process. So... That was how our relationship started way back, um, and and it was it's been amazing since then. You know, we've sort of developed um, these these centerpiece one-off pies together, um, which, which is incredible. Sort of learning, 
So the best thing about working with Dickinson and Morris is that I can, uh, I have the freedom to do like the wackiest sort of, um, out there designs. Um, and I spend a lot of time drawing those at home, sort of these crazy pie designs. And then I just give them to Dickinson and Morris and we say, right, let's find out how to get to there and do it on scale at retail level. And, and we do it, right? They're incredible. Mm. Yeah, the, they are incredible. I was, I was being absolute glutton last night with them. And I want to talk about that kind of, I, I definitely think there's a movement with um, high-end, in, incredibly skilled chefs moving into retail. Like Jim Khan has just launched a, a curry spread that's going into, yeah. gone into Whole Foods. Um, Strake has just done the all things butter thing. I definitely think there's going to be a movement with more chefs releasing products for retail. But what you said, I want to go back slightly one step because obviously now it's very easy looking back to 2014 and saying, oh, this, this pie movement's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you're now going to be opening up restaurants, well, hopefully around Europe um, and, and and spreading kind of the British, British food and, and um, pie making around the world. But if we go back to, to 2014 in that kitchen with this obsession with pies, like that could have, it's a big risk opening a pie room in like a super expensive, like central London thing. What was, how did you deliver that message to, to, to the hotel and say, look, yeah. I think we're on something here and the team can't stop thinking about pies because all ideas retrospectively look great, but at the time... In that moment, it's a big, bold move that I don't think people understand, or not understand, but could understand more. Do you know what I mean? No, I, I, I totally get that. And, you know, my view on it at the time was that if I was a – look, when I go on holiday, if I go to Portugal, I want to, you know, eat a custard, a little custard tart. You yeah. know, if I go uh, – to Italy, if I go to Milan, I want to have a risotto milanese and I want to have Via Losabuco, right? I want to have the food of, you know, where I'm going. And I had this sort of itch at the time about London that we were losing focus of that in terms of offerings. We had this incredible restaurant scene, a beautiful, like, multiculturalism and, and varied food, which is um, um, like almost unbeatable in the world. Um, but in terms of British food, actually not that many places, right, that were doing good stuff. So I felt, you know, from someone, I travel a lot with my job and uh, I felt, okay, did what can we do to sort of um, galvanise that a little bit? Right. So for me, pie making was, was that path. So we were looking at, you know, 600 years of written history of pie making. Um, we were in a position at the time with that restaurant where one of London's most famous pie makers going back to sort of Victorian times was, was based 80 meters up the road from us, um, with a pub, with a pie room. So. I don't know whether I got possessed by his ghost, but we were like, you know, we uh, if if we take this as the centre of what we do, it, we are rooted in in London food history, but also British food history. And for a tourist coming to London, that's exciting, 
right? I thought, oh, this is a part of British food I didn't know, right? And um, I certainly didn't know that there was this much history to it and this much variety to it. You know, I mean, I'm looking at um, the sort of the regional pies of the UK at the moment and, and, and finding we have 150 recipes down at the moment of regional mad pies that we have in this country that... Uh, Are there any examples? Sorry, I'm just sorry. sorry, no, no, sorry. Yeah. That, no, that's, no. Uh, I mean, the, like the, the fidgety pie, right? Which sorry. Based around Norfolk is seen um, and, and, and different reasons for why it's called a fidgety pie. Well, you know, one is that sort of ingredients moved around in it when they were sort of putting it together. But um, also that, you know, there, there was a, a, a polecat called a fidget at the time and it smelled like that when you cooked it. So those are well wacky stories like that, but for you know, super interesting. So um, for me, I was like, we were based in a hotel with largely American guests. Love British history. That you know is an incredible story, um, and it's something that the team were passionate about. So everything was there, all the right ingredients for it to be successful. And I think the owners you know, listening to me being a weirdo about it for half an hour, they probably just gave up and said, yeah, okay, you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, absolutely pausing um, that Mackenzie Jones are extending their partnership with Hungary. So gassed. Um, in case you have been living under a rock, who are Mackenzie Jones? They are FMCG recruitment specialists. They work with some amazing brands, Lucky Saint, Real Superfoods, Hunter and Gather, and Purdy and Fig. Also with some of the big puppers, the big boys, the big G's, PepsiCo, Unilever, Campari. I've known Billy for yonks, Paul for the last year. He's a top bloke. They're just super kind and lovely. And they're just dedicated to our wonderful space, our wonderful industry of buccaneering challenger brands. And that they're so much more than a recruitment business. Check out the podcast video of them. It's epic. Um, I've even, even introduced Mackenzie Jones to some amazing brands. And they've really helped them scale. If you're looking to hire, just reach out to them. Have a chinware. Get in touch. Do yourself a favor. Thank you. Guys, are you ready? There is going to be some absolutely, totally, brilliantly bonkers next level madness coming your way today. Are you ready to take your brand to a whole new stratosphere for free? Imagine connecting your product to a digital world through a simple smartphone scan. You know the drill, scan it, bish, bash, bosh, you're away. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the magic of the new GS1 powered QR codes. These next generation barcodes act as a gateway to a world of endless possibilities. They connect your product's unique identity to multiple online sources of enriched real-time content. Why? Why on planet Earth should you be getting your mitts on these GS1-powered QR codes? Well, look, very, very simple, mate. GS1 will help you drive revenue, upsell and cross-sell your amazing products, boost your bottom line, boost your bottom line. Mm, yes, please. Where do I sign? Enhance customer engagement. Look, delight your customers with dynamic content that captivates and keeps them coming back for more, more, more. Please, sir, can I have some more? Yes, you can. Comply with regulations. Look, you want to be building your brand. You don't want to be knee-deep wading through a deep river of legislation, aggravation. These barcodes allow you to stay ahead of the curve. Look, don't allow this beautiful boat of boundless opportunity to sail away into the molting sunset. Be on that boat. Join GS1 UK's free pilot program today. Yes, it's completely free. There will be a link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I want to talk about, um, and we'll get onto it shortly, like a, a, obsession, because I think you've got to be obsessed mm. to, 
but like in those early nascent periods to a movement you've got to be obsessed and obviously again like now british food or british cooking is very in vogue but the, back then it, it kind of was beginning on the precipice but it, it wasn't as big as it is now so it's, it's that kind of obsession so but what is the history of these pie rooms these victorian pie rooms like how far what did you learn and like how, were you going to like a library were you going on fucking google like what we? How are you stoking your curiosity? Yeah, I mean, actually, Google. The, the, there's not that much information you can sort of garner from Google on on British pie making. But uh, actually, the, the the game changer for me was working with Polly Russell from the British Library um, and getting access to these sort of very old books, which you know we would have to sit in this room with security guards and white gloves on and sort of like leaf through these books very carefully, tweezers. Um, that was where we, we sort of really, that was a, um, changing moment in terms of getting into the history and the depths of it. And, and the pie rooms used to be above pubs all over the city. Right. And it was just, I, I don't know, I guess it'd be the chicken shop of the Victorian era. Right. Uh, yeah. That's mental. Yeah. 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 Very normal to see you know all over the city and and it's they've just disappeared and they've disappeared i guess turning into flats turning into all sorts of different things over the years um but it is part of our food history so for me that was an important part to cement again like okay let's have a space which is a pyram um and like much to my dismay the same is happening with pie mash shops as well right it's there needs to be some sort of, um, well, that's another thing down the line. But it's, a, it's another passion of my Mac shop. So, yeah, trying to find um, a solution to the disappearance of the Pine Mac shop is another thing um, that keeps me up. Why do you think that? Why do you think they've they've? Yeah, because on on paper it's good. Oh, like fish and chips hasn't dissipated, and that's yeah. British food. Why do you think pies? Why do you think that happened? It, it seems to kind of... And, yeah, if you go to get fish and chips now, it's more expensive, right? Have you noticed that? I mean, I, I definitely noticed from when I was a kid getting fish and chips to when I get fish and chips now. I mean, there's one down the road from me. You know, it it, it works out. It's, it's not a cheap meal anymore, and it shouldn't be because it's a piece mm. of fish, right? It's, mm. <laughs> if you want to have good fish, it's going to be expensive, so fish and chip shops moved with the time somewhat, right? They they looked at prices. You go there, you don't pay, you know, 5p for mushy peas anymore. You pay 50p or 75p or a pound or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, pie and mash shops didn't do that, right? And I, and I, I don't know if it was because they were nervous about losing their customer base Um but I feel that they were scared of changing prices to the price that they needed to, to stay profitable whilst rent and rates and electricity and gas all blew up in prices. They, that their, you know, their profit margin just went through straight down mm. through the floor. But I do think that there's a, there's a huge market waiting there for them, but I just think they're nervous about losing their current one. And that, that I might be wrong, but I feel that that's the issue. Um, because, yeah, I don't know. I think, again, it's something that um, it's part of the city's history. 
and and we should be proud of it and we should have people coming to London and going, I really want to go to Pymash shop because you look at protected buildings, right? Incredible architecture to them and stuff. Um yeah. Anyway, that's another the may you know, I know and it's I mean there's my brain's going like bubbling with curiosity. There's so much I want to ask you. Um I think the first thing is like a pie is almost like what I'm picking up from you, especially with the, the, the rich kind of architecture you have. I know you did a lot of drawings of the architecture, then put them on the pies or like mm. use them as inspiration. I really believe like a pie is almost like a story. Like we talked about the figgity or fidgety pie up in, um, up in uh, Norfolk. What would you, if I know you were kind of from Southeast London, if we were to just make you a pie or you were a pie or child was a pie, like what would be the ingredients to that pie? Do you think? Me? If I was made of a pie. Yeah, if you um, if we were to make a Cal- Callum Franklin pie, like what would be the ingredients going into it? <laughs> yeah, uh, a large percentage of it would be nervous energy, I think. Uh, I'm not someone who can sort of sit still. I have to like... Same here, same here. <laughs> doing something all the time, I think, um, which is why I was not sort of super happy um, in school, I think, because I'm just, you know, lots of kids are like that at school. I think just need that outlet of like what yeah something a little bit more energetic um yeah it's a slight obsession right um which definitely helps with pie making you you need that um i i i do think in my work i am extremely disciplined um i and that's a part of pie making which fits in well with with that discipline um organized and not necessarily in my normal life though honestly <laughs> i'm a bit sketchy in normal life in terms of yeah my wife has to give me a lot of sort of like why is this like this why is this like this and that and that i need that a little bit but in work i'm like 100 percent sort of this is how it's done you know we're, we're very careful and very sort of well planned with stuff um yeah, and then wrapped in a hot water pastry, probably. Hot water pastry. The discipline's interesting, really interesting. And I'd love to know what is your definition personally of 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 discipline? Uh, yeah, it's quite an easy one. So it goes back to um, Thomas Keller of the French Laundry and Per Se fame in the in the US, you know, one of the best chefs the United States has ever produced. Um incredible sort of chef. He wrote in the French Laundry Cookbook way back, I can't remember when that book came out, but it was, you know, seen as by many as a sort of a Bible in, in kitchens. He wrote in that book, um, you know, one of the most important things a chef can do is to always do the right thing even when no one is watching you. And that is a mantra that I've always put into kitchens. It's that thing of, you know, uh, it's a total game changer in your career as a chef. When you put that mantra into your head and you work off it, which is, you know, using the, the right equipment all the time, you know, doing things the way you've been shown all the time, even when chef's not there in the background and you're worried about them seeing you, You've just made the decision that you do it every time. And uh, and that's what the discipline is to me. It's a personal discipline. It's, you know, 
not having to be told to get into work on time. You just do it yourself. Um, being clean and tidy when you work, not being told to do that. You just do it yourself because you want to be like that. And uh, and that's it's personal discipline rather than me going around the kitchen going, you know, that, that's not what, how I operate a kitchen. Um, I just want to encourage people to put it within themselves. And then you have a really nice working team when you do it. Mm. I went, I interviewed Tommy Banks up in, um, up in Yorkshire mm. and his, he had a similar thing to you as, as he said, his, his, like how he runs the kitchen is, is empathy plus self-discipline. I, I, I yeah. discipline within the team and that's what, that's what creates like a frightening magical experience. But it's this, it's a combination of discipline and empathy, which is getting the best, that almost personal discipline. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating. Uh, uh, the, you, you talked about the French laundry and um, per se, I'm reading this book called Unreasonable Hospitality. It's really yeah, interesting Will, by this Will's book. book. Yeah. Will, yeah, yeah. Did you know him? He's, uh, yeah. yeah. So we were together in LA last January. We did a show together. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, I read his book. It's unreal. Um, but he talks a lot about some of his personal principles, which I want to explore with you. But he also talks a lot about um, Danny Mayer's kind of principles. Mm. So one of the things he says, and I was like, this is sick, like I underlined it loads, <clears throat> was uh, service is black and white, hospitality is colour. Yeah. And he talks a lot about, he talks a lot about the hospitality being the connection. What in your definition is like black, how, how would you see service as black and white at the Holborn dining room or pie room? And then how do you add that colour and connection through British pie making? Yeah, so, uh, I mean... Black and white is serving a guest food in a timely manner, well-seasoned, you know, interesting cooking. The colour is serving them food which creates memory, right? So whether that's the the pie that they're sat with in front of them has uh, a connection to the area that they're in, you know, whether it's a visual or, or, or something else. Um, that will create a memory that later on in, in life, they'll be eating something, they'll have that similar flavour and it will take them back to that moment when they were in Hoban. And and that's the colour for me is, you know, we talk about automation and um, once in a while you get a stupid article saying chefs will be replaced with robots. Robots <laughs> can't do that part, right? <laughs> They can yeah, do yeah, black yeah. and white. They can't do the color, which is the imagination. And, you know, I, I was in uh, Paris yesterday and we were sort of looking at some architecture around there and and just it, the fight, you can get it from the funniest places, inspiration, you know. It could be you're in the most sort of amazing gilded hall and actually like you take inspiration from a little door handle on the way out. Actually, that's the thing that sort of caught your eye. Um, that's the colour for me. Yeah, that's mad. And it's, it's well, it's true. Like, it's, I remember it vividly. It was my brother's birthday when we went to, to your restaurant and, like, we all walked across the, like, the bridge because the trains were bollocked. And, like, so it is that, that memory takes me back there. How, well, I want to talk about this architecture thing into the pie because I think, pastry or what I, well, I've, you know I've never been a chef right but like what I've read and listened a lot about it but pastry is a different type of kind of cookery 
what what is how does the architecture like go in into your creative process like it seems okay. like you pull from different things yeah draw, so, I mean, it's it's mad because so that came, the steps yeah. behind the pie basically so that came about from um you hear a lot of chefs kind of talk about i mean tommy is probably a great example tommy banks right grew up in the countryside surrounded by farming i think his father is in farming right and mm, mm. I, I think so um, and yeah they, i mean they're a farmer yeah yeah and yeah you know he, tommy probably grew, you know genuinely grew up pulling vegetables out of the ground right and and surrounded by that sort of wonderful agriculture and and that's something for him that's uh, a deep rooted connection in his food and you can see it when you eat in his restaurants. It's amazing. I grew up in Southeast London. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, when I was young, we sort of, I looked forward to, you know, McDonald's Happy Meals and, and sort of going out and, and sort of being naughty on buses and stuff. But being surrounded by that style of food wasn't there. Because that connection wasn't there. So I, when I hear about chefs talk about terroir and the connection to the land and stuff, I am like envious of that. But I was like, how do I anchor my food where I live? And I do that through my other passion, which is architecture and design. So um, it was taking inspiration from from the buildings around me, whether that would be, you know, the the British Museum or, you know, whether it's, you know, the Freemasons Hall. Um, and actually, you know, I worked on a really fun project a, a long time back where um, I got in contact with a guy who's a mudlarker. You know, mudlarking? Mudlarking. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Right, so mudlarking is these, these these people that go out at sort of low tide onto the banks of rivers and they look for historical artifacts, right? And and there's these like gangs of them that go out, especially on the the Thames is pretty cool for it because you had they, they mm-hmm. find all this incredible stuff from, you know, Victorian London and Roman times even. Um so this guy brought me a coin which was from the original Covent Garden when it was built. And on the coin, there was uh, an unusual stamp through it. And that stamp was the stamp of a Freemason. Now, he was like, look, if you look at where you are and where Covent Garden is and where the Freemasons Hall is, it's kind of like a triangle. So I was like, okay, that's super cool. Let's do a pie where the design is based on this coin. And we'll you know, tell the story of that and how that came about. Um, and yeah, I don't know, like stuff like that, I just go nuts for. I, that, that's, that is how we root stuff into things. Oh my God, I am so, so, so excited. It feels like Hungary is finally swimming in the big leagues. I can't believe this, it's absolutely mental. But delighted to announce that Big Fish, yes, Big Fish, are part of the podcast. Perry's been on the podcast three times. Listeners absolutely love it. Some of my most downloaded and cherished episodes of all time. But Big Fish are behind literally so many brands in your cupboard, in your weekly shop. Charlie Bigham, Year Valley, Tyrrells, Clipper Tea, Goo, Rana. I mean, make the list is longer than the River Nile. But they also share risk and invest in brands that they really believe are a force for good. They're brands that they believe are going to be the next big thing. Like Howder, the snack that gives back. But even more exciting news, 
big fish want to speak to the next wave of small challenger food and drink brands that are destined for big things the raconteurs the movers shakers buccaneering visionaries so look if you want to speak to big fish and just have a chat get your brand in front of them then drop me a message my mate louis from local beer amazing beer was in their office aka la fish bowl uh, last week chatting to perry freddie and the big fish crew so drop me a message if you would like to speak to them what i love about that is like being unapologetically authentic do you know what i mean is it's like you can't you're not saying you were pulling turnips out in you know the yorkshire dales it's it's being who you are and i think it's it's a it's a brave bold thing it links back to what you said what we're talking about at the beginning it's like obviously now retrospectively it's easy but yeah obviously british pies the tourists coming in but back then it's it was a bold move to lean into your like completely authentic self is there an example um of like say we take a pie and, and we 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 reverse engineer the creative process of like say say you're walking around london or paris and mm-hmm. how that goes through what the ingredients were i'd love to just know that it seems super interesting yeah i mean if say for example uh we think yeah i, I mean like that would that would probably be one of the strongest examples of that that you know, that single little coin garden. out on the banks. Yeah. But um, how I work now, I mean, definitely we would start off with flavor profile, right? So that's the beginning of the process. Uh, it's whether, you know, we're looking at, okay, if we're going to launch a pie in, say, end of the year, potentially game season in the UK. So that's a nice little starting point. We can work from that and then, from there, that's where I would open up to the team about design, okay? So something that at the Pyram, I, was, I, I try to encourage as much as possible is the creativity side of things. So as a chef, when I was young, that creative side is very, was very much stifled, and, and it is quite often in, in the industry at the beginning. And I get it at the beginning. You need to learn how to cook, right? Um, but... If it's stifled too much, I think it can knock it out of you. And I would still try to encourage the team a little bit. So I'd say to them, I wanted to go and do some drawings, you know, go and find something that inspires you in the city. Go, you know, even if it's, it could be music, right? It's something that was something you heard and, and it's say created an emotion in you. I wanted to come back and tell me about it and, and to start bringing that into uh, the pie room at the time. And then from there, that would be where the team would get together. We'd start sketching together. And then I would tend to sort of then push that up another level. So I would find something, whether it's in the design or in the pie making itself or uh, in the cooking process, which would challenge us, right? So it would it would take us out of our comfort zone, Um and generally the reaction to that always was from the whole team, uh, how how the hell are we going to do that? And then we would find a way to do it. And by doing that process every time, we created new styles and new techniques within pie making itself, um, which we were happy always to share with the rest of the, the sort of pie making community in the world. Um because that was that fed into another um, ethos of us, which was very strong, which was uh, sharing 
all knowledge and all technique with anybody who asked ever and and lots of people disagree with that what why 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 did you why yeah because a lot of chefs want to keep it closed book like this is it's yeah our ip essentially what why because um there's a very strong example of this and it's if you look at uh the explosion of sort of uh, the Nordic dining scene and, and then after that, the rest of Europe blowing up in terms of, you know, Michelin-starred restaurants and, and skill and technique and, and it just exploding in Europe and France falling behind, right? And the reason for that was there was a period of time where chefs were all across Europe doing collaboration dinners, sharing knowledge, inviting stagiaires into their kitchen, being very open. And in France at the time, they were still very, no, this is our recipes, this is our knowledge, this is a secret. And what happened was Europe moved very quickly ahead. Uh, the rest of Europe, sorry, moved very quickly ahead. And and things have changed now. France definitely caught up again. Uh, but... I saw that happening and I knew there was something to that. But also I, the way I explained it to the team was, look, tell me what what's the worst that can happen if I invite a chef in here and say, okay, in the next three days, I'm going to show you every single technique and skill and bit of knowledge that I have on this specific, you know, cooking style. What is the worst thing that can happen? And they'd all say, well, he'll go away and he'll do it better than you. And I was like, yeah, but that's not a bad thing. Right? It's not a bad thing because it means that I constantly have to evolve and push myself and do better and always strive to be on top. Otherwise, we just sit at this level. It's very comfortable you know, and, and potentially the others just rise up above you anyway. So it's about creating competition and making sure that there, there's always this drive to be better, to learn and to create new things. So, and, and, and it makes people come and, and say, I want to learn, I want to learn, I want to learn. Um, so yeah, it, it was this ethos that we put in and, and, and it worked really well for us. Mm. Yeah, so I love doing these conversations. You learn so much that you don't expect to learn, but like, yeah, almost creating your own competition to to, to keep pushing you pushing you up is mad. Is there an example of that where you someone came in and then they did their own pie and then that that forced you to push harder? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, you know, we we would invite. So we started doing a, a, an old school French style of pie called patin crits. Right, which is uh, it's a really interesting sort of the rectangular cold pie, um, which has a jelly in it, and traditionally, uh, you know, a peasant dish. It was made of pork foie gras. It doesn't sound like peasant, but it was back in the day, uh, and like the trimmings of pork and foie gras, and then wrapped in pastry and then a pork jelly, and over the years become extremely elaborate and extravagant and, and beautiful and detailed in terms of making it. And there's a world championship. And yeah, we would, um, there was this weird little world when we started doing it of, of, of a small handful of chefs around the globe 
who were all trying to learn this technique because in France, they were very closed off about the technique. It was very secretive. So we were sort of learning from each other. And, and I think um, in the Pyrum, because we were making it every day at the Pyrum, um, we got quite far ahead. And, and that was when chefs would come and we would share that knowledge with them. And it would be, you know, kind of unusual things that I learned. I, sometimes I would feel like, okay, everyone's caught up with us. What can I do to push things forward again? Right. To sh- not to show everyone, but just to like me put myself mentally in a place where I'm, I'm sort of like, no, we're okay. We're sort of, we're cracking on. So I did a dinner with Tom Kerridge and um, Tom said to me, look, uh, it's going to be 12 guests. It's very sort of small private dinner. Is there any chance you could do something kind of fun for the evening? Right? <laughs> something a bit unusual. So, um, I went away. I said, yeah, leave it with me. I'm going to do something. And I had seen this technique done maybe in the seventies where that style of rectangular pie, they would slice it. And, uh, I was sure I'll let draw this because it makes more sense to draw it in the, um, center of the pie. If you had a slice would be a sausage, right? So be a slice of sausage there. And literally there would be a clock face on it. Right, which they were like, wait, by you know this amazing sausage making technique, and I was like, well, I'm going to do that, but this is a big but. The when I've seen it done, what the chefs used to do was after they slice it, they used to with a little paintbrush with some squid ink, they used to draw the hands of the clock on right, and I was like, that's cheating. So what I want to have is the the hands of the clock are on there. And as you slice the pie, the time changes, right? So it's mental. I spent a month, I genuinely spent a month working it out. And I think I didn't sleep properly for a month because I was trying to sort of work out how I would do it with this sausage making technique. And my wife thought we were in financial trouble or something because I wasn't, I was just waking up looking like haggard. And I was trying to, I didn't want to explain to it. It's because I'm trying to work out how to put a clock into a pie. Um, <laughs> into sausage. Yeah. yeah into, but, As jokes. But on the evening, we had, you know, I, I sort of presented this uh, en croute. And uh, on the side of it, it had written in, in black pastry, uh, you know, the watch company, Patek Philippe. So I, I, I mm-hmm. put Pate Philippe down the side. And I said to the guests, look, this is, um, uh, it's a it's a a working clock made of pie, right? And I'm gonna slice it, and it's gonna show you what the time is in the room tonight. And uh, I sliced it knowing that it was the wrong time, right? And I kind of showed, turned it around, and showed it to everyone. And all the guests were like, mm, "Didn't work." And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." Sometimes with these things, you know, they, they need a bit of a shake. So I shook it and I sliced it, and it was the right time that was in the room. And it kind of just like <laughs> blew it front of my eyes. But learning that technique, I felt kind of pushed me a little bit further forward. And then again, you know, since then, I've probably explained that technique in detail to chefs countless times so they can do it. And, and I don't, I'm not going to fall back on it as something that I've done and now I have to learn other things. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's what I'm getting from you, mate. Is this almost this this? And I kind of I kind of relate to you in this uh, kind of upset, anxious obsession with learning. I I just channel it into a podcast. I love speaking to people, but it, you can apply it to anything. Um, and it's like once you learn something, it's the next thing. I've got this kind of constant. What's the next fucking thing I'm going to learn? Yeah. What? Um, what? So so going back to Will's book. They, he has a lot of principles in that book, which he's picked kind of from Danny and from his own um, learnings. What would you say are the, the we, we talked about like um, do the right thing even when no one's looking, which is like discipline. What are some other of your Callum principles that you you live by and you want your team teams to, to live by? Yeah, I mean, look, we, I think working in London for, I mean, it's close to sort of 22 years. Um, one thing that sort of excited me about working in the city, um, aside from just having like the most amazing communities within kitchens, especially big kitchens, you know, just very, very different nationalities and cultures. And, um, I felt like the city was a place where people could come and be themselves. Right. And, and, and sort of, enjoy life and 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 focus on what they want to do and the kitchen very much that opportunity as well so you know uh there's that is a meritocracy where you it's based on skill i expect on how much work you put in there and um, but with that you know they're in, in a multicultural kitchen, there needs to be a level of respect for each other and respect for each other's religions and cultures and putting a big emphasis on that allowed us to have very happy large kitchens and it was something I was really proud of uh Holborn dining room was that we had a very low staff turnover um and actually you know the senior team probably largely didn't change for the entire time I was there but um treating each other with with dignity and respect is a big thing um and it, it yeah should be a bare minimum in the workplace really right but in a lot of kitchens it's not um yeah i mean aside from that it's really those sort of like those key things it's the, the you know self-discipline um allowing people to be creative um encouraging that in people um and also like it took me a while to learn this thing you know the uh you really have to understand that everybody reacts differently to pressure. Um, certainly when I started cooking, there was this very lateral view on that, which was, look, this is the level of pressure. If you are not able to cope with it, then get out, right? You just don't belong here. And it was not... Um, that level of pressure was not an environment where different lifestyles and different views and people's different personalities, uh, they wouldn't necessarily fit into there. And firstly, like I just saw we lost lots of people in the industry who just went, this isn't for me, right? Where a slight attitude change by the person at the top would have meant that that person could have been successful in this industry 
and potentially would be doing wonderful things, right? So that annoyed me at the beginning. But also, I've worked with people who genuinely, I worked with one French kid in London who said to me one day, Chef, is it possible? I know, like, this is the level of discipline in the kitchen, but is it possible you give me more shit than us? <laughs> what? <laughs> you little freak? And he was like, yeah, yeah. No, he's like, I love it. Like, I, I want you to, like, like give it to me. And so was, <laughs> right. A masochist, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you want. Yeah, yeah I can. But, um, yeah, yeah. For him, that was the right thing, right? That's what he wanted. Uh, and for other people, you have to be slightly more soft in your approach and sort of more gentle, and you'll, you'll bring out that sort of amazing efficiency out of them that way. Um, so, yeah, understanding that. Yeah, it's just that. It's, it's understanding, especially in a big kitchen, that it's, um, you really have to, to work at people's personalities to get the best out of them. Mm. I have to work with people's personalities to get the best out of them. I love that. And then another thing you said was encourage people to be creative. Mm. Uh, that's fascinating to me. I, 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 one of my fascinations is like creative cultures in, in any realm. H how do you do that? How do you encourage, say that French chef who yeah. wanted to get more bollocked more, how do you encourage that person to, to be bring their, to, not to, to to not to be bold in their creativity yeah, is what I'm, so I'm the, trying to get to. The biggest barrier that you face with that is people, and without fail, people say, "Yeah, I oh, know, but I'm not really like I, I'm not, and I, I, I'm not into art. I'm not creative, right? People, mm. and, I, and I don't know why that is. Whether it was people were told that at school, or they've been, they just don't believe in themselves enough." But I absolutely promise you every human being has a creative side. And it, sometimes it just needs to be coaxed out and it can present itself in many different ways, whether it's, you know, actually, you know, it turns out people are amazing at painting or it turns out they're amazing at uh, carving wood or music or all these things. But, um, somewhere down the line they've made a decision that they're not good at it right and i i, I get that i think i was the same I, I felt like i'm not good at drawing i'm not good at these things and i realized over time actually it's just practice and consistency and uh, you know especially with doing designs of pies and stuff it was working out how to get sketches to look realistic and use you know i buy books based on you know how to draw 3d and stuff like that and i would study those things and then all of a sudden, yeah, actually, I'm not bad at this. I can do it. And so that was when I started to really push people to do it as well. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and I think it's, it can put people into a happy place. I think it's a nice thing to have in your life. I think, um, completely agree. It's like even not to say all accountants on creative, right? But like even accountants when you're a little kid play with Lego or run around the fucking field and play, right? Yep. So everyone at, as as is creative and as I think eventually through school and just the education system you, it kind of gets bludgeoned out of you and I think you're so right if you can find that creative output um it's it can be a place of like complete bliss and and um ser serenity hi there guys thank you so much for listening as always it means the absolute world to me before we jump into this episode I need a really big 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 favor I have pitched us massive guests humongous guests 
and unfortunately they've said no because my subscriber count isn't big enough please 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 just hit the subscribe button on apple or spotify or follow ultimately it helps all of us bigger guests equals better conversations equals hopefully better insights for you which means you can scale hopefully faster with a little less stress as well so please hit that subscribe button and yeah enjoy this episode what i do want to talk about is is the gym i know you go to the gym twice a day i I heard that on a podcast yeah um what does your like routine look like now uh like yeah what does your gym routine look like and how how's that helped you be more creative i think Oh, it's slightly more complex now. I'm sort of working between uh, France and the UK, but I still I do try and go every day. Um, I was in the gym this morning, and, and actually that's a thing where um, when I left working, you know, every day in, in the kitchen, I was like, okay, I, my body still needs some, like, strong physical exercise. So uh, I'd never been to a gym like not properly since I was probably 17 because in the kitchen you're running every day right like you're 16 hours straight you are gassing in the kitchen so you burn calories so I was like okay I need to I need to do I'm 41 I want to start going and uh at first I got PT and just to kind of help me through sort of getting programs and getting you know used to using all the machinery and stuff and now it's just that again that sort of personal discipline of like I go there, I know exactly what I want to do. I've, I've written down the sort of plan. Uh, and I'm not trying to get like, you know, massive protein like that. I just <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. healthy and to, to feel good about myself. And, and I do. And, and it's a real joy that I've brought into my life. Uh, I enjoy going to the gym as weird as that sounds. Um, and, and it also gives me a time where, Again, I'm sort of alone. Um, I just focus on what I'm doing and I, and I can think about lots of other things whilst I do it. Um, whether that's work or whether it's new projects that I'm planning or how I'm going to have a conversation with someone later in the day, whatever. It just gives me a little bit of sort of focused time to do those things. Uh, I guess in the same way, you know, when, when people do things like, I don't know whether they're like painting warhammer miniatures in games workshop that's probably why that shop's lasted so long right you (laughs) do that and you can just like focus in on something and and in the background you've got all of those things going on it's um yeah there's something about having a a stop switch and we were talking about when you get on the train the Eurostar. that is another kind of Mm. there's something about doing something that's in motion that allows this to switch off and that's where the creativity comes from i think yeah the um you talked about chapter one or chapter two um that kitchen being like really tough or or like old bit old school i think if i'm right in saying yeah do you think of an era yeah so so uh, i interviewed paul ainsworth Mm -hmm. on this podcast and he talked about a time when um gordon like obviously they're pretty good mates now, but Gordon had threw him down the stairs at Royal Hospital Road because he'd fucked up and um, asked him to clean clean the, the uh, fridge. And obviously that's not okay these days. Like the, the the culture's changed. What do you do? You think there is something in these re- like these really hot, tough, like pressure cooker environments where it was 
just so intense. Do you think now that it's eased off a bit, we've potentially lost something? Or, or what, what's your take on that? No, I mean, I think that the, at that very high level, say, for example, yeah. um, Core by Claire Smith, right? Three Mission Star Restaurant. Um, the food that they cook there is immaculate and it is consistently immaculate. And you don't achieve that without that level of discipline in the kitchen, but there's not that physical abuse that used to happen. It's more, what I think has changed is the, the chefs who really want to be at the top level, right? So we're talking like, you know, sports athletes that want to be in the Olympics. In, in cooking, it's the people that want to work at that three-star level, the highest level. They have a different level of self-discipline than people used to back in those days somewhat, I think. And I see it. I see young chefs now who don't drink, who don't really like go out and party. And it's because they're like, they have this mental goal. They're like, no, I'm going to. And obviously there were people like that back then, but not on such a scale, I think. And um, Interesting, yeah. So I think yeah, we haven't lost anything. It's just changed the style of those kitchens. And look, my view on it is because I I do believe in a sort of, you know, a, for me, I like a, a, a work environment where everyone's happy and having a good time, right? But I understand utterly that at that level of cooking that doesn't work necessarily right mm. like if everyone comes in they're able to sort of have a bit of a chat and stuff like that <laughs> it doesn't really work and and what people need to understand is i think that it is this very elite level and if you don't want to be in that environment you don't have to be right mm. you don't necessarily have to be or you know if you feel strongly about it, then change the system yourself and find a way to open that level of kitchen and do it with that sort of like, ban you know, banter, but like very fun environment. I just think it's a lot. I don't cook at that level. So for me, if I said, oh, I don't know why they're not just like nicer to people and fun and whatever. Like, can you imagine if like, if, like using that um, example of the Olympics and stuff like that, if you're training, say, for example, a 100-meter sprint to be, you want to win gold, and you just told your coach one day, like, stop stop being so, like, stop putting pressure on me. Do you know what I mean? Like, actually, today I just, I, I'm going to go out and, like, have a, a fun day instead today. Stop giving me shit. Like, will that person reach that level? Probably not, right? Because it's the person next to them who's just, like, head in the game. Um and I think it's that personal choice of people want to go and do that. And, and I get it. And I met a guy the other day in Dubai who was working in a very good kitchen. And he said that to me flat out. He was like, look, like I thrive in these environments. This is what I want. I want to work at the highest level in the most disciplined kitchens. It's where I'm at my best. And I was like, okay, yeah, these are the guys that guys and girls that like that. And, and that's, that's fair enough. Right. Mm. yeah i hadn't i hadn't thought of it like that what would you because claire smith's coming on this podcast in a couple of weeks i think what would you say is the difference i was nice about it. say yeah ship yeah, yeah yeah 
yeah, 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 I, I will do. What, what would you say is the difference between walking into a three-star um, restaurant 2023 versus, say, 93, 20 years ago? Like, how, because it's still, as you said, it, 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 the approach, the, the wider cultural approach has changed, i.e. people aren't partying and mm. people are, you know, going to the gym, they're being yeah. more personally disciplined. When you actually walk into the kitchen, what would you say? Is it yeah, any I mean, different? I, or is it- There's no shouting nowadays, right? Yeah. It's very rare. You know, shouting is a loss of discipline, right? It's that losing your control. So nowadays, those kitchens are very much just like serene and, and sort of very calm and and. Every is just laser focus, and you can see it on the faces of all the chefs. And there's, you know, there's a guy, Daniel Calvert, who cooks in Tokyo. Um, and I worked with him when he was 15 years old. He came as an apprentice to work with us, and you know, he got voted best restaurant in Asia last uh, this year, right? Little British kid cooking in Tokyo, best restaurant in Asia. Sick. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Real mad that one, but his cooking is immaculate right and i think when you see that style of kitchen you go in there and it's just he said to me when he was cooking in paris he was cooking at epicure which is three mission star restaurant and he said the way i got ahead quickly in that kitchen was when i was on the fish section every piece of fish that i cooked i cooked it like it was going to be the last piece of fish i ever cook for the chef like I wanted it to be the best piece of fish I've ever cooked in my life and then the next one the same so I had to be better than that one and he was like and I never ever wavered on that and I remember him telling me that and I was like oh, it's just this mad level of discipline this incredible laser focus and it's gotten to where he is now um so I think you see that quite often in those kitchens on everybody's faces and if people don't have that, then they probably won't be able to cut it in those places. Like you wouldn't in a football team, right? If you're, in the, you're the best team in the premiership, if you're the one on the team, it's just like somehow just to get to the side and you're like, go out and have a bit of razzmatazz the night before and then have some pies. And then, you know, you get shown up very quickly when it comes to the match and you'll be yeah. up quite quick. But what I like about it is not every team has to or wants to be Real Madrid or Barcelona. Like it's that there, there are those people who want to win the Champions League, but there are also other. If you put it putting it through football lens, like there are other clubs like Bournemouth who who, who their their values and their why are very different, but they, yeah. they still get the same satisfaction. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. interesting. What are some of the? As you say, you travel a lot with with your job. What are some of the countries <clears throat> you've eaten in or just absorbed that have changed the way you approach your life in the UK? Uh, yeah, I mean, probably, I'm going to say this as a separate country because they very much feel like they're a separate country, but Quebec, right? <laughs> like, don't say, uh, yeah, yeah, don't yeah. say Quebec. The Quebecois do not like to be called Canadians, right? Um, I had a wonderful time cooking there just before um, – the dreaded lockdowns appeared. Uh, actually, I was in Toronto. No, I was in I was in Montreal when I remember watching the news in the hotel, and I called my sous chef who was in another room, and I said, 
have you seen this thing? It's like, it's in Toronto. We need to get back to London pretty quick. And that was when everything went pear shaped then. But that period of time cooking in Montreal, we got invited out there to cook for a food festival. And I saw a community within, especially within Montreal, where people, I think genuinely, they don't waste a meal. Like, like almost every meal is like, it's there for enjoyment, not just nourishment. And it made me realize things about my career. Like, say, for example, when we did breakfast at Holborn Dining Room, it, you know, it was the, the hardest service of the day, actually. And then for different reasons, like partly, you know, because no, most people that are coming into the restaurant in, in the morning, they just want to be eating quickly and getting out. People are a bit grumpy because it's early in the morning and, and the chefs, it was hard to get them to be enthusiastic about cooking breakfast because it's breakfast, right? But I think that time in Montreal made me feel like, well, if you do it, you can still write a menu in a way which makes people enthusiastic about cooking it and get people excited about doing breakfast and look at it in a different way. So, yeah, I think that, that Montreal is probably the most recent one that sort of change my mind on things a little bit um yeah probably and what did you do with the breakfast menu how did you make it in came back and like chopped it up a bit and sort of made it a bit more interesting ingredients and make it more exciting for other people to sort of jump on and do service rather than just being like you know bacon eggs omelette porridge right it's just it gets very repetitive and boring looking at seasonality yeah. and stuff like that. And so we're trying to work all of that properly in and get the breakfast chefs excited about menu writing and things like that as well. Um, yeah, really looking at it just on the same level as uh, breakfast, lunch and dinner all on the same part. And actually, you know, another person who's very good at that is Paul Ainsworth. Like his, if you ever go to... Um, Padstow, and you stay at the Padstow townhouse. I don't know if they still do it, but they used to do the breakfast at one of his other restaurants, which was called uh, Rohanos in the Square. I think it's maybe changed mm. so now. But when they had the breakfast, I was like, oh, my God, this has got to be, like, top five in the UK. I was saying that because I'm not eating breakfast everywhere in the UK, so I can't say <laughs> But it's got yeah. to be top five. It is so good and the sourcing of the ingredients just amazing and you could just genuinely see that like his normal chefs were cooking it it was plated so nicely and like you know not exchange no foams or anything but it was just beautifully done and i was like man if a tourist came here and had this breakfast they'd be like Fuck, like a british breakfast is so good you know he was using like these like you know uh, there's that type of pudding from Cornwall, like a, similar to white pudding, uh, things like that. Just like these like little local ingredients and stuff. Yeah, very good. Uh, so he was another person sort of inspired a bit more change on breakfast. Boemi, our beloved sponsor, are helping build the fastest growing challenger food and drink brands. Look, if you're a small brand just starting out and need your first indie stockist, your first hundred stockist to wholesale, Boemi are the platform to categorically speed that up. But if you're a big brand wanting to get bigger, Boemi are also 
insane. They make field sales, marble smooth, silky slick. They're just epic. Ollie's, Ollie's been on this podcast twice actually. They saw a 29% uplift in sales when using Bowie to check major malt listings availability. Insane. 29% uplift by downloading an app. Insane. Lucky Saint, my boy Aaron Duff, is coming on this podcast in a couple of week, weeks. He uses it to manage a team of 30 people and they've, Lucky Saint, have unlocked 500 draft listings by using Bowie Me. Look, you've got to get involved with this stuff. It's absolutely insane and it will categorically change your life. It's just the sickest platform. I use it all the time at Islands. Hi guys, super, super quick one. So, so excited. Look, for years I've been badgering on about Hungry the podcast. You're probably bored to death. Thanks for putting up with me. But Hungry is also an agency. And we look after one amazing brand called Islands Chocolate. We've had a great time over the year. We've won listings at a load of wholesalers. We've won Milk and More. We've got our first grocery listing coming very soon, which is very, very sick. But what I'm thrilled to announce is Hungry is merging with HC Consulting. Um, my boy Harry Clark and his wonderful team. He's an absolute G. They do brand strategy, new business, business and account management. But why I really love working with Harry and why we've got on so well over the last couple of months is Harry was actually the founder of uh, the boozy isolated brand Pops. So he's been in the trenches. He's grafted his face off. He's had the sleepless nights. He's had the turmoil. He's had the triumph. He knows what it is to be a founder. He is a founder. And he's got a proven track record in grocery and out of home. Holy moly dips, the gut stuff, Savile drinks, Remio gelato. So if you're a brand and you're, you're stuck, you're looking for like new business help, you're looking to scale, drop us a message. We'd love to chat. Thank you so much. Back to the old episode. What I loved, and I think it's really insane what I've learned, is how you like encourage competition by sharing mm-hmm. your pie knowledge, right? What are some of the chefs that you look to that are like, they, they, you know, they say you're the average of the five people you spend your time with or whatever. Like, who do you hang out with that push you to that level? Who are some of your mates slash mentors? Yeah, I mean, sort of, you know, people that uh, made me, like, drive and, and strive to be better. Um, I mean, across the world, it's, it's sort of, uh, in terms of career, I look at someone like Nancy in LA. Um, you know, she has this uh, restaurant empire out there. She owns most, you know, these huge chain of uh italian restaurants and and she's become a friend over the years and i and she's you know i i would say this politely i think nancy is 70 i hope i got that right but <laughs> she's at the she's at the top of this massive empire and still traveling all the time cooking in restaurants and yeah, she inspires me. She makes me push and, and make me realize what's achievable um, it, within this industry. And 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 the t- also the team that she's built, incredible. Um, and yeah, and then also uh, I look at people. Uh, I have friends who have just a singular restaurant as well, right? And and have done that incredibly well. And and that sometimes centers me a bit more. And 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 I go, okay, actually. Right now, I have sort of a plan for 10 projects, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do this one perfectly first, and then I'll focus on the other ones. And and you need that sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and there's lots of, of chefs that do that. Tommy, who's, you know, been on your podcast, Tommy Banks, uh, inspires me in different ways as well, apart from just being one of the nicest nicest totally. people in the industry him and his brother 
just absolutely lovely people. Tommy inspires me in the way that uh, he's built his restaurants up. Um, he's built it around what he enjoys doing, right? So he's working with cricket a lot now because he's obsessive with cricket and he's just happy in what he does because of that. You know, he's not doing collaborations with things that don't really make sense to him. Um, and he's taken his time to do it. And actually, if anyone's watching this that works in sort of television industry, Tommy needs to do much more TV because he's very good at it and he's just a nice person. So, um, yeah, he's definitely another person that sort of inspires me all the time. He's he's a legend. Like he, We actually recorded the interview at, up in Oldstead. I drove up to the Black Swan and then mm. at the end he like took me round all his farms and he's got these containers. He's got like, he, he hires someone to be like a forager. He's got a guy called yeah. Dicky, who's like an actual forager. And I think he showed me all these ingredients. He was like, this is just, but it goes back to leaning into that, you know, leaning into that bold authenticness, which is, which is, which is you. Um, loving this, mate. I, a few more things and we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Have you got a bit of time to keep going for a sec? Is that all right? Yeah, go for a little bit more. If we talk a little bit about the pie that we're doing with uh, Dickinson and Morris, if that's all right with you. Yeah, of course. And we need to talk about the Instagram stuff as well because I think yes. that's super yeah. interesting. Um, so, so yeah, so, so Dick, Dickinson Morris pie. So you said you met them in, well, whilst you're at Hoban Dining yeah. Room. And then, so, so what, what is the, as, as I said, like there's so many chefs now. I really think the biggest movement is, is chefs creating products, I think is going to be a yeah. huge movement. Tommy's got Banks Brothers Wine. Uh, as I said, Tom Strake has just done the All Things Butter thing. Mm -hmm. um, Jim Carn has just gone into pastes. Angela Hart has just done something with Bella Zoo, the yeah. sauce. What's, what's, what's your goal with, with this and, and these guys? So the reason I want to work with Dickinson, well, the reason I do work with Dickinson Morris and I have worked with them for quite a while now is because uh, we both have the same goal, which is to raise the level of pie making in the UK, right? And to, and to make it better. And uh, for me, it was understanding how to do that on scale. And for them was understanding the smaller skills and the more detailed stuff that I know. So it was a nice partnership. And I think that, when you talk about those things like Jim Carter and Tommy and Angela, um, whilst it looks like chefs are all pushing themselves into these things, it's actually the opposite. It's consumer-led, right? It's that nowadays people are more careful about ingredients and they want to eat better and they want to eat better meat, better fish, better pasta sauces, better wine right across the country and that's not just in the uk it's worldwide people are going back to that um and because that demand is theirs retail is reaching out to chefs and asking for that collaboration work um otherwise it, it wouldn't exist right it, supermarkets wouldn't bother at all because it's, it's too much of a financial risk um but with Dickinson and Morris, for me, what was exciting about working with them was that whole thing of process. It was, okay, look, this is our end goal, which is mad. How can we possibly get this done, but on mass? How do we do it? How do we work out the processes? What do we build? What do we, you know, what type of, what small piece of equipment do we have to manufacture to get that little detail 
but to make a thousand a day. How do we do it? And by doing that, we disrupt all, you know, what is already a pretty sort of steady, leveled out industry and we make it more interesting. Um, and I work with this, you know, development chef Katie Curtis there, who's amazing. I mean, the whole team there is brilliant. But that's a company that has, you know, if you think about it, they've been making pies for 170 years. Largely as well, with, you know, the pork pie at PGI status, which is, you know, that sort of protected, it has to be a certain way for it to have a PGI status. But they're a very forward thinking company because they work with people like me. And they're like, okay, but how can we push things forward as well and do different offerings? So, you know, every year we've released different types of uh, like these special celebration pies. So we did one for the coronation. Um, mm. and I remember having a conversation with them about it where we did it and, and we were talking about, uh, you know, the price for that pie. And I remember saying, look, I think we can set it for what it is, amazing sort of handmade, beautiful, large pie. So we can push the price because I think people value food more and, and it's sold out like, boom, the moment we put it up on sale. Uh, so it's opened their eyes to like what we can do with pie making in terms of pushing technique and stuff. And yeah, this Christmas one that we've done, I think it's already, it's already started to pick up awards already, which is early in that sort of awards season. But um, it's... Again, something I wanted it to be doesn't look like, and because it, it, it hasn't, it doesn't look like a machine made pie. It's, it's made by hand. It's a freestanding domed pie um, that looks beautiful. It looks like a Christmas present, right? And, uh, Gorgeous, yeah. Again, that was the sort of thing like, how do we do a ribbon? Right? That's a, you know, we do that, do you make thousands of them? How do we do that? So we work that out together. And then the filling itself, that, you know, is pork. Uh, smoked bacon, chicken, cranberry, and I think it's a it's a port jelly. We finished it, a port jelly, and uh, Katie and I were backwards and forwards for months on that. You know, she I would make a version, I would send it to her. She'd make a version, send it to me. These pies going across on post for months before we were sort of both happy, and then the team were happy, and then that's when we started going. Okay, now we can work on design because right? the, the middle is always the most important thing. So it's just an interesting process for me working with them and it's something that I'd love to sort of continue because uh, together I think we can do some like, very exciting stuff. It's what, what I find so interesting is a lot of businesses and brands have the issue whereby when you're small, you've got quality, like it's easy to have quality and, and control. Of anything in food, any brand, right? That's why a lot of these brands start in kitchen table, in kitchen tables, so like markets, etc. But then, as you get, as you scale, how do you keep that magic? I'd love to explore this. So, these Dickinson Morris been around for 130 years, I think you said. Oh, you've been doing pies, yeah, 170 years. What have been like the biggest, the hardest things of keeping the magic whilst getting up to a thousand pies a day? Like, what are the things yeah. you've had to go through? Do you see what I mean? I mean. Uh, one thing is that, you know, they, their core products are actually pretty sort of tight. So it's like pork pie, right? They're, they're not doing a million products, which is how like, that's really difficult with sort of consistency and quality. So they've always had that sort of level of consistency is already there. The other stuff that we do is the slightly more experimental stuff with me. And it's tough, right? And, and the teamwork 
very, very hard, especially at this time of year when we launch like a Christmas product. It's like all hands on deck to make these things. And uh, if we look at sort of um, quality control in terms of how it looks, right? Mm. Actually, I want each pie to look very slightly different because I want I want you as a customer to open that box and to know that a human being has built it, right? I don't want you to open it and to think it's been pressed in a machine in a factory somewhere. It's not the type of people I want to work with. And, and I work with people who literally are hands-on and Katie as well. Like, and the, she's a development chef. At Christmas, she's there in the bakery as well with the team and they are just cracking on making these pies. And the reason why there's that level of consistency and quality is because it's just like teeming with experience in those in those bakeries. People that have worked in, in, in pie making for 20, 30, 40 years plus. Um, so they, this is their life, right? They live for mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. affection and making it a high level of quality. And would, would the goal ever to go into like more retail, into like a, say, a Sainsbury's or a Waitrose or... Where's your one thing I want to kind of talk about is we talked about you left to, for, for you let you left um, pie room for your own goals and ambitions. Like, is that ever something you've thought about with Dickinson and Morris? Like, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I the future's very open in terms of what we do together. I think I would love to, yeah, have I'd like to do uh, maybe a different style of pie with them in the future in terms of a retail option um, mm. because I think that. So if you look at history of pie making, right, it is peaks and troughs. So it's there, it's a constant, it's 600 years of written history and further history beyond that. But if you look at specifically that 600 years, pie making has gone from, as it goes across the sort of timeline, it's like peasant food and then like peaks as like royal banquets, you know, and, and sort of you imagine the Game of Thrones style, like pies being served and... Um, uh, weddings and stuff and then it goes back down to the next century and it's back down to like peasant food again this happens all the way through that period of time and if you look at where we're at now i think it was sort of quite severely affected by two major factors one was you know two big world wars and rationing uh, you know how that affected the uk but also industrialization industrialization had a massive effect and I think that we are now sort of just back up on that scale of, of pie making getting better again in this country. And if I can improve on that with Dickinson and Morris, which is what we're trying to do, and whether that's in a, a bigger scale of retail, then like we're living the dream, right? And that, that's me happy. Um, and I will continue to do smaller scale stuff as well in restaurants and things like that. But I want to be able to reach more people on a bigger scale with, and make people passionate about British pie making again. Mm. I think, well, it's a, cat a category that's crying for innovation. Because, mm. um, I mean, my background is I work for Challenger Brands in retail. That's kind of what I, I do. But the um, James Cochran's chili sauce, have you had that, yeah. the chili jam? Yeah. That, I think that's a great example of it doing well. Um, you said about the in industrial revolution. What happened with that? Um, how did that affect the pie making? 
Well, not just pie making, but affecting lots of food processing in this world, which is where if you look at something like the you know the, the original Walker's factory that uh, not Walker's uh, Kellogg's factory that was built in the UK, right? That I mean, I watched a TV show about it. It was essentially like a small town, right? This factory, um, a Willy Wonka style sort of, you know, and 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 what it did was stuff like that. Whilst amazing to sort of get your head around how that was built back then in the, I think in the eighties. It took out any sort of passion about the actual ingredient itself. And it was all about manufacturing rather than cooking, rather than ingredients, rather than nourishment. It was all about manufacturing and processing. And yeah, that affected many things in this country. And, and pie making probably took a big hit off it as well. And in doing so, its reputation took a big hit as well. So people kind of see pies as something that should be a cheap food, which they really shouldn't, right? If you think about it, like it's got meat in it generally. In most pies, is like a meat product inside. Should actually be quite expensive. But there is this view that needs to be challenged, which is a pie should cost no more than two quid, which is mad. Um so, yeah, those are the things that we need to change and, and that were affected by that industrialization. Mm. It's mad how, yeah, how that's happened. Um, two, two more things, Callum, of yeah, loving this, mate, and just, yeah, learning so much. Let's talk about Instagram because I think now it's ubiquitous. Chefs kind of have to use it as a, as a marketing channel. I think, as I said, before we hit the record button, you were one of the first chefs to do that, like, Talk to me about the genesis of that. I know you said your girlfriend, or sorry, wife, gave you a nudge on that. Yeah, so that was, you know, at the time, uh, I, I wasn't really using Instagram much when we opened the restaurant. And I think I'd sort of dabbled into it and, and I kind of looked at the food that a lot of the chefs were putting up on Instagram. And most of the stuff I saw was kind of uh, very, like, vibrant, bright stuff, you know, lots of, like, that classic, like, sort of, um, you know, uh, sauce drags across places that you see sometimes on MasterChef nowadays. Um, and I was doing something very different in my kitchen. And it's fine, right? very separate. My wife said to me, look, this food you're doing, you should probably think about putting it on social media because I think people will be interested. And I, I just didn't click with me. I was like, no one wants to see brown food. Right, it's not. I don't, I don't think it's appealing. I look at what was, what was being successful on Instagram, and it wasn't that. It was this sort of like very like in your face, colourful food. But then I thought I'll just give it a try. So I opened up an Instagram account. She turned out I already had one, and uh, there was one picture of my ex girlfriend on it. So my wife was like, "Well, get to meet that." <laughs> and, uh, We'll start a new one up and we started this sort of, you know, uh, Instagram account and very quickly it built traction. And I think the reason for it was, was because it offered something different, right? Mm. It, it was complete to the opposite tide to what was going, what was being successful at the, at the moment. And, um, yeah, I, I just think I, I, I caught a lucky break with that to some extent because what that did was it, it put, what we did out there on an international level, 
because it, it garnered a lot of interest from abroad. People were like, ah, oh, I didn't know this about British cooking. Like, I didn't know that there was this sub subculture of British cooking. And I actually, I talked about Thomas Keller earlier. You know, Thomas Keller is one of the first people that reached out and said, look, is it okay if I send some of my chefs to work with you? And um, we have the thing, you know, like people that uh, do very well in a month or whatever, or, or, or over a six-month period, we offer them a chance to go and stage somewhere. And, and all of a sudden, we had his chefs coming over from the States, which was mad to me at the time because we were making pies, right? But he he appreciated that craft and culture and history, and he wanted his chefs to be enriched by it, so he sent them to us. Um, and, yeah, I, I think that... Um, I've lost my train of thought. No, it's it's yeah, no, no, we're, well, it's just it's just this um, your kind of ability to share. I think is one of the most powerful things because I think what I, one of the things that's really changed my my perspective in this conversation is how I thought. And to be fair, Tommy was kind of showing me when he was showing me around his IP is all those things, all those weird ingredients he's got access to in those um, yeah in those locked up things and i kind of that's what i thought like if, if you're to be a really successful chef and again there's more than one way to skin a cat right but like um but where, whereas your approach callum is about sharing and actually almost like the rule of reciprocity what you give comes back and if you've got all these chefs coming over mm. to stage at, uh, at your restaurant it's super interesting um final question what, yep. what's one tr one truth um i ask this to all guests what's one truth you really believe in that you think most chefs would probably disagree with you on? I genuinely believe that a chef doesn't have to be in the kitchen every day overseeing every service for a kitchen to be successful. And I think it actually can have the opposite effect. And I know that rubs a lot of chefs up the wrong way and they say, no, if, if, if the chef's not in the kitchen every day, it's bullshit. Like, you know, they should just be on the pass all the time, making sure that that restaurant is the best it can be all the time. But actually it doesn't empower the other people around that chef, whether that's the, the sous chef or the, the, you know, the senior sous or, or the, the chef de parties for people to be able to grow and to take on more responsibility. Actually, it's healthy for the chef to not be there all the time, and it's just this very old school attitude. And 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 it's also it's quite often it's lies, and it really annoys me when chefs are like yeah, I'm always in my kitchen, and I'm like, well, you're not, because I know you're not, because I saw you on social media out the other day at like a, a you know lunch with mates, and your restaurant was open, so I know you weren't there. So why? continue this myth that it's so important that the chef's always there and i had a big fallout once with uh some food bloggers actually so these um, there's a small subculture of food bloggers who only eat in like the three-star restaurants of the world and they were basically saying on on twitter and um, i refuse to call it x on twitter that uh the chef must be on the pass every day and i said well, I disagree. And one of them said, um, well, we're not talking about your type of chef. We're talking about the, the high-level chef. Oh, <laughs> like, you need very, well, yeah. very good, very good. But I was like, okay, what are we talking about then? So 
one star, two star chefs, two star chefs should always be on the bar. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. And I said, well, what about dinner by Heston Blumenthal? Right? I'm not even saying Heston. I'm not talking about Heston. I'm talking about at the time, I think it was Ashley Palmer Watts was, was in charge of dinner. Two star restaurant. Is he on the pass every service? Probably. Yeah. And I was like, well, that restaurant's open seven days a week and it's open breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Are you telling me that Ashley Palmer Watts is on the pass from the first thing in the morning till the last thing in the evening, seven days a week? Because he's fucking not, I tell you that. And the reason why that restaurant is successful and consistent is probably because Ashley's not there seven days a week. Because what happens if he got sick? What happens if he's not able, there's some reason, a car accident? Everything falls apart, right? So anyway, big fallout with that lot. But I think I probably... How, how, how do you keep consistency if you're not there? Not there? Like is Because I can kind of... I, that's number two. The, 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 yeah. You know, to have the same values as you. And uh, right. I very much had that at Holborn. You know, we... My senior team knew exactly how I, my, my palette was. And they knew exactly how I wanted things dressed and exactly how I wanted things seasoned. And, and, and we did that by working together closely all the time. And, and, and for me to give them the opportunity to do those things and then to say, okay, look, that wasn't quite right. That wasn't quite right. And, you know, we learn from it, we build from it. But if you don't give people that opportunity, you and you know, if you're in that position where you have to step away for some reason, everything falls apart. So um, you have to have trust and allow people to grow and and, and to to step into that role. Sometimes, Callum, mate, it's been yeah, I've absolutely loved that. Brain is bubbling cool. with wisdom. Um, in terms of where listeners can get the mitts on the pies, directly through Dickinson Morris website. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the Christmas pie will be available. I think it's Waitrose, Deli Counters, you know, Fordham & Mason, Fordham & Mason Online, and porkpie.co.uk, I think, is the the main access points for the Christmas pie. Uh, and that will be mid-December, I think it will be launched. Um, and you need to be, like, hot on the dial with that one because it always sells out really quickly. But that will be on my social media. It'll be on Dickinson's, Dickinson and Morris social media if you follow them as well. Um, so, yeah, please do kind of grab one of those Christmas pies. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely epic. Um, lovely, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for listening to the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. If you liked that episode, only if you liked it, please do give it five stars, subscribe, tell all your friends, families, foes, next door but one, cat, dog, whatever. Please tell everyone about this podcast. It means the world to me. And I really want to understand what your pain points are as the new wave of, of Challenger Food and Drink brands. Please do hit me up on LinkedIn, search Dan Pope, and hopefully we can together create a more meaningful and powerful podcast for the next wave of Challenger Food and Drink brands. Thank you so much. Thank you.